back when I was an undergrad, it wasn't really a thing. Like you didn't have AI classes or, or you didn't have machine learning as a, as a topic. But in the two, three years that had passed by the time I got to Stanford, I think the academic and the intellectual promise of machine learning had become evident. It was just starting to match human capabilities. What the potential would be, I think, despite how hopeful it felt at the time, I think expectations have been blown so far. I don't think I expected AI to become as big as it has. I don't think anybody really. And at the time, we felt like we were very bullish on AI. It was pre-pandemic, all live, all exciting. And uh, I was just bullish and excited to get my feet wet and learn everything that I could. Hey folks, I'm Connor Gaughan, and welcome to Consensus in Conversation, a podcast where we're talking to the innovators, entrepreneurs, and thought leaders who are committed to building successful businesses that also help us build a better world. If you've been paying attention to the news in business, technology, or media recently, then you know the topic of the day is AI. It really seems like we've hit a kind of critical mass in the last year with applications like image generators and ChatGPT bringing public attention to the possibilities of AI even as the capabilities of the underlying technology begin to surpass our most optimistic initial impressions. It's an exciting and maybe just a little bit scary inflection point. Nearly every day, we're reading news stories about what AI can do and encountering new AI-driven companies working to harness that power. For those of us that lived through the internet boom of the 90s, there's a lot that feels familiar about this Wild West rush to figure out just what this new technology can or should be used for. And much like the internet, AI is poised to be a powerful tool for innovators and entrepreneurs committed to making a positive impact. Many of our biggest global challenges, like climate change, are massively complicated. Researchers can devote entire careers to understanding just one small facet of the huge and interconnected web of cause and effect that make up these problems. Solutions need to take into account an immense number of variables to ensure that they are not only successful, but equitable for everyone. How can a business owner or investor make the best decisions about allocating and protecting their assets from the effects of climate change when even understanding what those effects might be requires processing billions or trillions of data inputs. Well, fortunately, this is the exact kind of thing that AI and machine learning particularly excel at. There's a whole new generation of AI business leaders building exciting companies that aim to tap AI's potential to help us understand and then stay two steps ahead of our biggest challenges. And my guest this week is one of them. Max Evans is the co-founder and former chief technology officer of Climate AI a startup focused on climate-proofing global supply chains through AI-enhanced forecasting of extreme weather and other climate-related events. Max himself has lived the classic founder's journey, a Harvard degree in applied mathematics, an MBA at Stanford, building a startup from his dorm room, and heading all the way to the boardroom. He's got a deep understanding of machine learning and environmental engineering, and under his watch, Climate AI has grown from a student dream to running operations in 35 countries and being named a World Economic Forum Technology Pioneer in 2023. I'm super excited to have Max on the show to share his journey and help us understand a little bit more about how AI can contribute to a better and more sustainable future. So let's get into the conversation. So let's just start at the beginning. Tell us a little bit about yourself. I'm Max Evans, current CEO of Ocus AI. I'm originally from Ecuador, grew up in a pineapple farm. So my, my family farms uh, pineapple at an industrial scale. 
when I turned 18, moved to the States, uh, went, went to study my undergrad at Harvard University, um, studied applied math, then went to Stanford, where I did an environmental engineering master's and met my roommate, Himanshu Gupta, and we started Climate AI. I mean, let's talk a little bit about the beginning there. Growing up on a farm in kind of an agricultural industry, how do you think that shaped your your perspective, your worldview when it comes to understanding the climate and, and land? And I have to imagine it was an integral part of that. Yeah, yeah. I, I think it definitely gives you a, a unique perspective into food security, um, into just the work. You, you really get to see what, what gets put into creating the, the food that ends up going into the plate, the like year and a half that it'll take to make a single pineapple and also around the fragility of it in terms of climate. If there was a particular event, like it gets too hot and you get natural blooming, then your whole crop could get bloomed and it'll come out off market season, off season, or it'll all come out, out at once. So then your livelihood could be really affected. It's a particularly fragile system, and there's still a lot to be done to help both the climate, to help food security, and to help people's livelihoods. What was it about Harvard that pulled you, and what? why did you decide to do that? It was well-known. It, it was very uh, the prestige, uh, the financial assistance, definitely. And I was able to visit when I initially applied. It, it was just a, a like far off dream. It really wasn't until I, I arrived, until I met my roommates at Harvard, who then became my best lifelong friends, that I really understood how great it was, both, both the experience, the university, their very unique way of putting people into Harry Potter-like houses. <laughs> Wait, wh which house were you in? I was in Leverett, the bunnies. Okay. The rabbits. I was a Kirkland houser. So, so. So, yeah, and, and I think it, it wasn't until I, I experienced that that community that, that I really understood what, what I've gotten myself into. Yeah, the way that the, the mythology manifests is so interesting. I mean, I remember like that walk through the gates, I think just a random Tuesday on the way to class and looking around and thought, this is it. Like, this is actually what I'm doing. This is real. This is not make-believe. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Now, I was not an applied math major. Uh, <laughs> so tell us what that entailed. I took exactly one math class. I loved it, but uh, only one at Harvard. So tell us what it was like to be an applied math major. Why was that your path? Uh, it, it wasn't. Initially, I, I was going econ. So the first year, uh, I got into econ classes, and I just found that... What I loved the most of it, what was actually the math behind it. I actually took the placement test and turned out I was very behind. I started like on the very rock bottom, like then worked my way up all the math classes, but just the way they teach it, the support they gave you, it, it was just fantastic throughout. Then I actually needed to work to support myself and got the magnificent opportunity to work on computational mathematics and TA. And it was actually a very initial machine learning class. 
around unsupervised learning, around matrices transformations, and how we could get computers to understand the world through linear algebra. So it was very accidental landing me in machine learning early on. And when you were doing that, did it immediately resonate? Were you TAing and and working through the class with your students and thinking, this is this is some stuff I want to stick with. This is stuff I love. Yeah, I, I think going back to the Harry Potter-like houses, I, I think that that was my very first moment of, of witnessing magic. I saw how you could create an unsupervised model to learn to recognize a whistle as a passcode or how you could just... Magic just comes out of a machine and it, it felt very very magical and something that I wanted to really delve into. What else could we, together with, with machines, accomplish? Like, what could we do? It, it just seemed that there was something there that, that was bigger than the sum of its parts, but by an order of magnitude. Yeah. It really, I mean, magic is such an interesting way of describing it. And I think the idea of describing this machine learning, unsupervised learning, era as magic is is really apropos and i think resonates with a lot of people who've tried it you know done a, a prompt in gpt or watched you know an entire image or deck be built on their you know with with a simple line of instructions it really it feels magic to a lot of people i think so in between harvard and grad school you tried your hand at your first startup so tell us about that um so that, that was more of a small business. I think it, it never went past getting friends and family invested, but went back home, worked a little bit on the family business around a papaya plantation that didn't, didn't really go anywhere. We had a fungus outbreak. It was a, a mixture of being a little bit too close to the ocean uh, in, in our sighting and the the moisture that just comes in and out every morning near near the ocean so started working on that project opened up a english academy so just had two years yeah i mean growing up in a family business was that something that you always knew you wanted to pursue was was running your own business yeah i i think when that that's like the the family trade you always want to want to be like like your your father. You you always want to be like like your parents and follow that trait. So it was always something that I dreamt about doing. So got started on it as quickly as I could. Any lessons that you had in those first two years that looking back stuck with you over the last few as well? I, I just really wanted to jump into entrepreneurship. Yeah without a very clear idea of the industry and the application that I wanted. And I actually think, looking back, I would have liked to go deeper into an industry and understand it a lot more hands-on, both the academic depth and the industry, like the practical depth makes for some truly wonderful businesses, for some deeper ideas, for deeper and, and more meaningful insight into what can be done. So then what was it that reattracted you back into academia for graduate work? Um, so I think to, to gain that depth, um, 
I, I enjoyed uh, agricultural work. I, I enjoyed um, building markets for the developing world, connecting smallholder farmers with the broader international markets. I, I enjoyed the educational experience, but I, I still had, I felt a too superficial of an understanding and I wanted to both go deeper into my applied math work and into data science, as well as go deeper and get a deeper understanding of uh, businesses and get an MBA and, and collaborate with other people. Yeah. And set the stage for us of what Stanford was like at that time, you know, vis-a-vis what we now know of the machine learning environment to be. What was it like then? What was being talked about? What was being studied? What was being worked on? Obviously, Stanford is the heart in a lot of ways of where a lot of this technology originate. So what was the campus environment like when it comes to AI at that moment? Yeah, I think there was the intellectual and academic promise became evident of machine learning. I think because back when I was an undergrad, it wasn't really a thing. Like you didn't have AI classes, you had computational mathematics, or or you didn't have machine learning as as a topic. But in the Two, three years that had passed by the time I got to Stanford, I, I think the academic and the intellectual promise of machine learning with Fei-Fei Li's image net and the ability of computers to understand and detect an object in an image had become evident. It was just starting to match human capabilities. That There was a lot of promise on that side. I think on the business side, it hadn't really exploded outside of um, optimizing ads had been the big... The first real use case. Yeah, the, the big first use case. But there were starting to be some early hints that, that, that it would be big in the venture capital people started investing in it, that it could actually be applied to multiple areas. What the potential would be, I think, despite how hopeful it felt at the time, I think expectations have been blown so far. I don't think I expected AI to become as big as it has. I don't think anybody really. And at the time, we felt like we were very bullish on AI. So it's been a very interesting journey. And uh, I felt that I also wanted to work in something that was closer to what I knew. So environmental engineering and AI seemed like an incredibly green feel. It was pre-pandemic, all live, all exciting. And uh, I was just bullish and excited to get my feet wet and learn everything that I could. And you wanted, I mean, you mentioned this, you wanted to figure out that intersection with something you knew, environmental engineering being that topic. Did you immediately see the potential or recognize an opportunity or was it an exploration? Is it a a test and learn as you go? No, no, truly, truly an, an exploration. People miss the the amount of um, luck or just chance that that gets involved i think by chance in my very first class at stanford i sat next to himanchu who would become the ceo and and co-founder of climate ai and we started uh, our our friendship he lived a floor above me We, we eventually became roommates and eventually started taking classes together and eventually started moving from shared interest to a shared uh, project. We did one of those self-guided classes where together we studied stranded assets 
which were how climate change can sometimes change, obviously. And these investments or these mega projects get forgotten or stranded because the environment changes. So it can be in economics, it can be in buildings, it can be in manufacturing. We were particularly focused on energy buildings. Like if you put a big hydroelectric power plant in a dying river, how did that happen? Like why was such a large investment misplaced? And was there anything that could have been done earlier? So that's where where the, the initial idea uh, started coming in. So you start to see the, the potential of what's happening in machine learning to assess, maybe predictively understand the potential risks involved in. Yeah, 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 yeah. So then we, we started building like these models of how the earth is changing and how it could potentially impact assets. And those were the, the initial models. They've since been enhanced with our own sub-seasonal forecasting seasonal forecasting, multi-year forecasting, and a machine layer connecting all environmental variables together with economic and business-related variables to help people make decisions. That initially it was all about stranded assets, but eventually it became a lot more about just optimizing decision-making process for land, agricultural investment processing plants, energy plants. So it, it grew from the original idea over the years. Starts out, it's just a, a fun project at school. At what point did you realize you were onto something that could become a viable business? I, I think um, it was a lot to do with um, the people we talked to. I, I think the, the, the excitement around it, the culture at Stanford, very entrepreneurial culture. The professors who didn't just help us with with encouragement, but became angel investors. And the university itself, our first grant was uh, the Tomcat grant that helped really power that first mad summer of work and helped uh, fund our our first hire. So many factors, but I I think uh, one of the beautiful things about the Bay Area, the the Stanford community, is that you, you have this entrepreneurial current if you're not too careful, you, you get caught up in these entrepreneurs. <laughs> and next thing you know, you're, you're, you're a founder of, a, of an AI startup. It happens. <laughs> I feel like it's probably happening a lot these days, coming out of, of Stanford. So you get this grant, you have your first hire. What was the first project, the first business project that helped kind of validate the operation? Yeah, I think the, the, the first business project was around pension funds. We were looking at uh, these large pension funds making 30-year investments, and they weren't really assessing the, the climate risk of, of their portfolio. So we helped just analyze, yes, if you have this large amount of money deployed around a hydroelectric energy thesis in the future, what would uh, the climate change say about this thesis? That was one of the initial projects. Very quickly, we, we found our beachhead market in food and ag as well. That was probably like our second, third, and fourth project were related to food security and food sustainability around changing areas. 
say, your almond growing zones shifting north. So huge producers of food needing to change where they are investing, how their plants might need to be a little bit further north, or they might need to work with farmers to develop all of this adaptation technique with seeds on how to generate climate resilient seeds. And you want to be sure that you are looking into this and actually have all this climate intelligence in your business to make these decisions. So what was the market, like the sales and marketing strategy like? How did you find that beachhead? Um, I think it initially it was probably a mixture of professors, of cold outreaches, and just trying to expand on both our network and the network of those around us, always asking people for every call we had, three other people that we might be able to talk to and trying to just expand exponentially from a few links in your network, just continuously grow and continuously be talking to people. And if you had to kind of distill the elevator pitch in retrospect today, what was it? What is it? From our, our very first time looking at stranded assets to, to building a full climate intelligence platform, I think it's always been about being able to understand that this changing climate and understand both what is happening as well as how it will impact your businesses and how you can become a resilient organism that both understands the climate, understands its impacts, acts appropriately in a way both that you can set your actions that mitigate climate change as well as understand how you can better organize or reorganize your business around it. So it's a reality, it's happening, and we want to be aware and act appropriately. Yeah. I love this the phrase you just used, the climate intelligence platform. I think that's probably a really relatively easy way for people to digest kind of it. But I'm curious if you could talk about, I mean, the, the idea of what machine learning is, what AI is, what how these systems work is obviously still so foreign to 99.9% of the world. Um, how would you explain to the layman what the climate intelligence platform is? How does that, how is the machine learning embedded in that? What does that mean? Yeah. In the end, there isn't like an AI or one machine learning thing that happens. It's really around building an AI startup. It's around having this philosophy of being able to build lightweight, you can call them machine learning models, you could broadly speak at statistical models that improve and connect the data that's out there with the actions and the decisions that people are making. For us, it fleshes out in the forecasting models. You want to understand how the temperature, the water, precipitation, is going to look like the next week, the, the next month, the next year, the next decade. And um, on the back end, each of these is, is its own machine learning model because you need to parameterize the earth towards the right temporal outlook. But from the front end, it's really just getting better weather and climate forecasts for the near and long-term future. And then an area that we found machine learning very useful is in connecting these forecasts to things that matter to people. 
in this case, it can be yield. It can be how much are you going to produce of a certain crop. It can be quality, what potential defects in quality you might have or improvements you might have. It can be to a dollar value or a dollar amount. So there's a lot of statistical last mile and um, both lightweight and sometimes less lightweight, like LLMs in this case, are very good at bridging this last mile between data and humans and being able to make us more enriched, more data enriched than decision makers. So I think on those two sides is where AI has really helped. From where we sit now, AI is a perpetual topic in the headlines, be it you know, from a regulatory questions perspective, the markets are constantly, you know, you see headlines on every major AI player every day, up and down. So as you sit uh, from your perspective and look at the industry, give us your take on where it is or where it's going or what's next. Or how do you think about it, AI in general right now? It's, it's changing so rapidly that... Uh, it makes your head spin. It gives you a little bit of whiplash. And I like to focus on, on that realm between what's possible and impossible and try to make that near impossible things happen. That, that's where the most innovative business applications are from self-driving cars to intelligent machines, intelligent robots. So right now, this is happening a lot around text LLMs. But in the future, I see LMMs, these multimodal models, expanding to allow humans to interact now through not just text, but audio, uh, through video, in space, through multiple agents. So it, it's going to start growing outside of its early confines of a large language models to a more very initial, generally applicable AI. And that, that's exciting. I think exploring the boundaries is going to be a perpetually exciting topic. A lot of businesses, a lot of impact in the economy. And uh, it's difficult ju just constantly analyzing and, and keeping track of the latest AI potential and uh, threshold of, of possibility. Yeah. Let's get back to kind of the, the founding and, you know, Climate AI really was built with a you know with a mission and or with a goal I think of of doing good in the world. So how did you think about your opportunity and role as a company in the broader conversation about sustainability and the changing climate? We've always had a very strong mission of bringing businesses and the environment, climate change, closer together, help them understand each other, create this bridge. That allows for this understanding, that allows for uh, better relations, and that's always been a goal. So we, we focus a lot on communication, on actually actively being there on uh, LinkedIn, on social media, on different conferences, give what, what little we know about how the climate's changing, how it impacts food security, and help people understand that. I think we've always wanted to be a very positive voice and not, not just voice, but all of our work to focus on, on the more positive aspects around energy and food security. And I think beyond that, 
it's also been about promoting a very climate positive culture internally and externally. It's a very self-selecting bunch of us at Climate AI with just a real passion for the topic. And uh, it really helps when things get tough to have that that shared passion and, and that shared love for what you're doing every day. Yeah. You talk about being a voice in the industry. I'm, I'm curious, you've probably seen, thought about, built the models that have told a lot of people a lot about the changing climate in wherever region they are, in whatever discipline they're in, or, or trying to figure out. I'm curious what you think the data says at a macro level about where we are, where we might be going, where we might have opportunities to mitigate. Like, Talk to us about kind of the big picture data around the state of climate. Yeah, so for anyone who's doubting it, climate change is a thing. And um, <laughs> it's a general warming of the world, and we, we need to be aware of it. It's not a homogeneous event. It's not the same year to year. It's not a homogeneous event spatially. It's not the same wherever you are. And the sad part is that on the heterogeneity of it spatially, it it tends to impact those communities that are both closer to water, that live on more climate-sensitive areas, rather than than the most uh, industrially productive areas. There are mitigations. I think that we need to become much more efficient in how we use energy, much more efficient in how we use the limited set of material that Earth is giving us. And where we will land between two degrees or or three degrees will really matter around how well we as a collective humanity can curb our, our worst desires of consumerism and and just spending energy uh, materials beyond what the earth can sustain it it will be bad there's no way to sugarcoat it and it'll be bad heterogeneously so it'll be much worse for some and for others maybe not so much but especially because of this we need to think about those who it will impact the most um and and try to help for i think i suspect for a lot of um business clients of climate a climate ai it, and it, it may at its core be partially a risk mitigation risk management tool or device and i'm curious um you know if you if you talk about the difference between two and three degrees and what the impacts are but i'm curious if how you think about the risks uh, that we're looking at over the next 10 years like what are beyond it could be bad <laughs> or will be bad like, are there things that we that we you think about that are um, tangibles, you know, that we should be aware of? I'll, I'll give you an example. So a problem with climate risk is that it can be a multiplier effect on all our other risks. So two years back, the main bread zone of the world it suddenly finds itself in a war, the Russian-Ukraine war, where about a third to fifth of our wheat production comes from. So suddenly the the breadbasket of of the world is in a political crisis, a a war. At the same time, we we find ourselves in a pandemic. So we have another crisis. And then on top of it, we have a climate crisis that 
it's causing other breadbasket areas to fail. At Climate AI, we, we were working on an Australian seed producer for, for wheat and sorghum and being able to optimize the production locally in Australia. So we had three crises sort of like multiplying each other in, in a way that would cause famine, a real threat to a collapsing food security at a global level. And being able to then work with a seed producer to optimize the type of seed of wheat seed that they're going to produce for a particular area in a way that that year 10% more production could come up and actually help. So that was meaningful. It was a meaningful way that we could contribute to food security, to humanity in general. And it was a meaningful example of how when crises don't happen in isolation, because it's very hard to evaluate them in isolation, when they happen collectively, that's what worries me the most. It's not like, oh, if, if you ceteris paribus, everything constant, this is climate change. It's the everything coming together that keeps me up at night. Sure. Functionally, Climate AI has found a way to sell good products and services that do, do good things for the world or you know, help on the positive side, uh, enlighten, educate, mitigate in some cases, or empower companies to make decisions that are, that are better for the world. How do you think about the ability for companies, whether it's climate AI or the AI space in general, or just corporate America, how do you think about the ability to align those two distinct paths, doing well for the company and doing good for the world? So I think that they're well aligned, or at least they should be well aligned from one side. It's up to consumers to vote with our dollars. It's up to consumers to vote <laughs> with their political, yeah. true political activity. I know it gets repeated a lot, but, but voting with your dollars and, and going to the ballots are the two main ways that we as individuals can impact um, the world that we want to see both on the private companies, corporations, as well as on our political ecosystem. Then as companies, there is a potential, there's always an opportunity to take advantage of the blind spots of of the world. So I think if you're a company that looks past big faults, be it sexism, be it racism, or be it against this, that, that we should be able to do good, it allows you to create better businesses, better cultures, just more efficient practices. I, I don't think any of these isms or these ways that humans hurt both ourselves, our society, and the world are, are really good strategies, business strategies or personal strategies or people strategies. And it's actually an opportunity for up-and-coming businesses, for up-and-coming startups to plant a flag around, we we want to do good, we're going to do things differently than the way they've been done and going to look past these blind spots and take action. It is a powerful rallying cry that uh, helps some reminded uh, people work together. It helps give them a a lot of energy, a, a, a lot of power. So I think from that side, I've always been very impressed with how powerful it has been for us to just um, build a business around doing good and the amount of support that that has given us. So 
that's been very pleasant. And I, and I think it's broadly applicable. I think doing good is good. It's easy to tie them, tie them together. I mean, are, are there kind of big projects, programs, initiatives that you guys are most proud of, that you're most excited about? So, so I think there are, and, and I think we, we've been very involved in, in various conferences. We've been promoting various initiatives. I think that the name changed from Acre, used to be the name, around just trying to promote sustainability on land and on agricultural practices both in businesses and the agricultural space and the seed producing space i feel like we've generally been a voice for positive change around sustainable agricultural practices i know a big piece of the recent series b was to help fund expansion into countries in the global south and so i'm curious if that feels a bit like a full circle moment for you and how you see that yes 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 i, I think um it, it, it's curious how sometimes you'll see someone like me, a, a Hispanic or Latino, building a company here in the U.S. and in Silicon Valley, in large part thanks to the ecosystem and, and all of the facilities that you get. And eventually, it, the technology can go home. For me, it is the story, or at least the one that comes to mind is around roses. Ecuador is one of the biggest rose producers in the world. Just so happens that because they have this harsh altitude conditions, the stems grow big and the plants go long. And the sun is directly above you, so the stems will be perfectly straight and shooting upwards towards the sun in the equatorial regions. However, it changes year to year. You'll have either a cold season or a warm season. And plants grow based on heat units. And they can reach it in three months three months, two weeks, give it plus or minus a few weeks. For Ecuador, if your roses come after Valentine, they're worth a tenth of their price because nobody wants to buy a rose the, the day after Valentine's. So for the Ecuadorian economy at large, it really depends on the agricultural farmers being able to accurately forecast the next season and being able to plant the rose and you do what's, what's called a cut. That, that lets it then the rose finally grow out to Valentine three months before. So being able to give insight into how um, the Ecuadorian industry can best hit a fruitful Valentine, both for the Ecuadorian economy as well as for everybody who needs to give a rose to their loved ones was, was a very satisfying moment. That's awesome. What's next for you? I know you got a bunch of things you're excited about. What, what, what's, what do you have your eye on? I'm a big fan of electrification. This is more on a personal note, a big fan of, of the potential around new new energy sources from fusion. I really think AI has a big role to play on helping us model fluid dynamics of plasma better and actually be hopefully brings us this last mile to an effective fusion reactions. What's next is following these transformations on LMMs, multimodal large models. They come from large language models. So looking at video and trying to help computers through video understand physical processes 
and being able to use them to optimize safety and efficiencies in multiple industries and multiple businesses. That's the next plan or the next idea around Oculus AI, which is uh, my up and coming venture. I want to end kind of you sit in a unique position because you have insight into the changing climate and all of the kind of challenges and potential negativity that comes with that every season, every year, and at large. And AI, which some folks predict that, you know, it'll, it'll, there's the doomsday scenario for AI, right? So you got these two competing doomsday sectors in your life. And yet you show up with a smile and, and talk about how there's potential to make things better. And so I'm curious how you stay positive and not, don't become consumed by the negativity that's uh, thrown out there. How, how do you defeat defeatism? I, I'm definitely a glass half full type of person, but I think many founders are. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it comes, it comes with the role. But I think I have a deep respect and faith for human ingenuity and our ability to definitely mess up in large ways and cause a lot of damage. But at the same time, our ability to work together to actually think of innovative solutions. And I do believe in in a natural human desire to do good, to actually build, to be constructive and, and not destructive, to think and to dream and to try to make something out of those thoughts and dreams that that will help us. So I'm I'm in, in that business of building and dreaming and it's it's a nice business to be in and while I do like chasing the big and hairy problems I still have a lot of faith in dreams and communities coming together to build it. Big thanks to Max for joining us on the show this week and providing us with such a fascinating look at how AI can be a powerful tool for positive impact in the right hands. I know there's some anxiety around where AI goes from here, but knowing that folks like Max are playing a role in charting its course makes me really optimistic and excited about the future of the technology. To learn more about Climate AI and the services they offer, or if you're interested in joining their team, you can visit the website at climate.ai. We'll also have a link in the show notes. And we'll also include a link to Max's newest venture once he's mentioned it, Ocus AI, for those of you who'd like to keep up with his work. You can also connect with him directly on LinkedIn at Maximilian Evans. For questions, comments, or ideas sparked by today's conversation, or if you have a great idea for a future conversation, email us directly at cic at consensusdigital.com. That's cic at consensus-digital.com. Please write in and say hello. We'd love to hear from you and know what you're thinking about the show. You can also connect with me directly on LinkedIn and threads at ckgoany. As always, if you like the show, please give us a follow, a like, or leave a review wherever you listen helps us grow our reach and continue bringing you more awesome conversations with business leaders that you want to hear from. Thanks, everyone. We'll see you next week for a brand new conversation. Consensus and Conversation is hosted and executive produced by me, Connor Gaughan. The episode was produced by Will Gatchell and Jeff Rock with editing from the good folks at Reasonable Volume. Special thanks to the Consensus team, including Creative Director Kate Tucker, Greg Hergel on Research, and Patrick Gallagher on Strategy. Consensus in Conversation can be found on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, YouTube, or wherever you listen. Consensus in Conversation is a podcast by Consensus Digital Media, produced in association with Reasonable Volume.